good of anybody. We're going to stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. We all feel better. In the dark, we all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell, let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered, they will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest and together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint, too much is a cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. Stupid. Why didn't you tell me, huh? You sent me to him, you know. And until we get back in touch with you. Go watch that movie. Right, Devin? Go watch that movie. <laughs> There's only one thing I hope we accomplish with this episode, my friend. What's that, Thomas? That we leave the episode justified. All right. This is something we should have done a long, long time ago. Yeah, but we're busy men. We got a lot of things yeah. to do. And sadly, the reason we're doing this is because, of course, I'm bent out of shape about something. Well, usually, when we do episodes, it's either one or two reasons. Me and Tom love it a lot, or Tom is bent out of shape about something. Well, to be fair, though, it's another one of these episodes where we've praised this particular person many, 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 many times in the past. But we've never actually sat down and did an episode devoted to, to this him. man. Yeah, yes. yeah. Just as we finally got around heaping an hour's worth of praise on Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone right. and John Frankenheimer and all these other great, great men that we're going to be doing in the future. Now is the time for us to speak and genuflect in front of the altar of the great, the late Sam Peckinpah. And it's really interesting in that these great, great men episodes was originally something that we were just going to do just for the summer. However, yeah. of course, we had you people out there yeah. listening to it, and they started sending us suggestions. Yeah. Oh, why don't you do this? Exactly. Somebody suggests we do Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. All the people. I mean, people just been sending in suggestions for all different great, great men episodes. So, like other sub-episodes of Better mm-hmm. in the Dark, this is something that's going to be an ongoing thing that's going to last through the summer into the fall and the winter, I suppose. This one is a great, great man episode about right. the great, great, and I'd even put an extra great on that 
Sam Peckinpah due to not only his influence on filmmakers, but the influence he had on film, period. This is a man that completely reinvented the Western yes. genre. A man who really, in a way, I think, never quite recovered over the fact that that period of American history disappeared. Yeah. This is a man, and I don't know if you would agree with me on this, I think that if he had been born 50 years earlier, would have been perfectly happy never making a movie. Yeah. He was a man born out of his time. Mm -hmm. Much well, like another great, great man, Robert E. Howard. Yeah. The reason we've decided to do it at this time is because, and there must have been some sort of weird zeitgeist in the air, a lot of his movies have either been remade or are about to be remade. Right. And we wanted to put this episode on tape to kind of explain to those people who are going to walk out of Straw Dogs in a couple of weeks from this recording, or The Killer Elite, and say, what a piece of shit, I don't understand. Ah, now, one thing I found out, yeah, this new Killer yeah. Elite, it is not a remake of the Pekka Paul movie. Okay. That's why it's only called Killer Elite and not The, the Killer Ah, Elite. okay. This is based on a novel that's totally unrelated to anything okay. having to do with the original Sam and, and to be fair, when you and I were discussing this, I said, actually, judging from the trailers, it looked like it was going to be more respectful and looked like it was going to be something I might actually be interested in. Oh, I'm still interested yeah. in seeing it, but I'm just saying that yeah. even when I saw it, I said, well, mm -hmm. they must have came up with a completely different yeah. story than the one for the original yeah. Killer Elite, which we'll get into, because that's one of yeah. my favorite movies, period. In one way or another, all of Sam Peckinpah's movies are my favorite Sam yeah. Peckinpah movies, and I can't say that about a lot of directors. Yeah. But in addition to these two films that are being released this month, as of this recording on uh, September 9th... So the Killer Elite, that's not a remake, okay. but Straw Dogs, Straw Dogs is... is I mean, hell, is. they're using the same... Freaking ad campaign. Here we go, folks. They're using <laughs> the same ad campaign. And from what I understand, our good friend Brian Higgins of the Hammockus Podcast okay. has read the script. He says it has nothing whatsoever to do mm -hmm. with the film. And I've established it before in an earlier episode we did that this is one of my favorite films. Yeah. A very dark, very, very, dark, very brutal dark. film. Matter of fact, if you had asked me what movie, and I have a list of movies yeah. actually that I say, well, that couldn't be made today. Right. Straw Dogs is on that list. High on that list. High on that list. I said, nah, you, you couldn't make that movie today. But apparently, Rod Lurie decided he wanted to do a home invasion movie and decided to change some of the names and call it Straw Dogs and claim that it's based on the script by Peck and Paul. Mm -hmm. Not the novel, I find it interesting, because mm -hmm. the original is based on a novel, The Siege of Trenchers Farm, as mm -hmm. we've established in the past. But what appalls me is that the poster, it's the same image. Yeah. The yeah. same exact image, only with James Masters. See, this infuriates me about you. Tell how many people today actually know anything about the original Sam Peckinpah movie? Outside of me and you and a handful of others. And, of course, the wonderfully perceptive people that listen to this podcast. And you know what's going to happen. How, no, you answer the question. How many people know about the original Straw Dogs? Do you I don't know. I'm willing to bet there's a lot of people go to the movies nowadays, don't even know who Sam Peckinpah is. Oh, if you say, I, I don't if, doubt that. If you say, who's Sam Peckinpah? They say, well, I don't know. Well, I was discussing this with Brian right. the other day when we recorded an episode of his show, which I do recommend. It can be found at, at hammockus.com. Is there an episode of anybody's show you're not recording? <laughs> I'm not recording any Comic Geek Speak episodes. <laughs> that will change. No, it won't. 
Oh. We were discussing this, and he pointed out that using the Straw Dog's name made no sense because the people who are probably going to go see this movie have no knowledge of the Sam Peckinpah original, and since it has no resemblance to the original, using that name is not going to attract the people who might be interested in a Straw Dog's remake, like myself, like you, like Big William at The Gentleman's Guide. We're not going to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole because we know it has nothing to do with the original. So why use the Straw Dog's name? There's no upside to that. Because it's a great title. Yeah, well, it's still, Ron Lurie sucks. Why is it that everybody automatically sucks because they want to make a remake of a movie? He didn't make a remake. Okay, what did he do? He apparently took his home invasion movie, set in the South, Okay. And tacked the Straw Dog's name onto it in some misguided attempt to maybe get some more people into the theater. Okay, if there's any upside to this, what I would hope is that people would say, okay, well, Straw Dogs, and then when they find out that it's a remake, they would go back and want to see the original Sam Peckinpah. To be- me, that's the benefit mm-hmm. of doing this. Because people say, okay, because you do have people who do that. They say, oh, I didn't know there was a remake. Recently, I just put up a review of the 1974 Mm-hmm. The taking of Pelham right. one two three. You know how many emails? I swear, I got eight emails from people that said, mm-hmm. "Oh, I didn't know that there was an earlier one." You had seen the recent one with Denzel Washington, and they said, "I had no idea that right. it was a remake." And they went back and they said, "You were right. The original is a better movie." Right. So I me, mean, that's what I'm hoping that people right. will get out of this. They will maybe go see it or say, "Well, it was an early one," and they'll go back and they'll revisit the original Sam Peckinpah movie. Now. I'm going to tell you how come I figured that this movie would never get remade. It couldn't get made today. The original way that Sam Peckinpah made it, and I'm willing to bet you that they toned down this aspect of the movie considerably. Because Susan as you George, and, Eric's boyfriend. As you and I know, there is a scene in yeah. the movie where the wife, mm-hmm. and for those of y'all who are sensitive spoilers... There's a scene where she's gang raped. And there is a definite element in the movie where she is a participant in her mm-hmm. own rape. That couldn't be put in today because you would have the women's group going nuts over yeah. that part oh, of the Oh, there are a number of elements. The fact that the person they end up protecting in the final quote-unquote siege is a known pedophile who we know just murdered a young woman. Mm-hmm. There are so many different elements. But that's the thing that makes Peckinpah such an interesting director. He doesn't see the world. I think we referenced this with another director Uh earlier. There are directors in this world who see things in black and white, good and evil. Mm -hmm. And then there are directors like Peckinpah who just see shades of gray. And as such, his interest is not in what's right or what's wrong. Like in The Wild Bunch. It's not what's right or what's wrong, but what people do for each other. The main characters of The Wild Bunch are terrible people, but they have a respect for each other. There's a terrific scene in there Mm -hmm. where William Holden and Ernest Borgnine are arguing. And William Holden tells them, we got to do this because I gave my word to do it. And Ernest Borgnine tells them, it's not your word, it's who you give it to. And that's the philosophy Mm -hmm. of Sam Peckinpah, I think. It's not who you give your word, it's who you give your word to. Because it's that Western convention, well, I gave my word, so I got to stand by my word. And Sam Peckinpah, his philosophy in all of his movies seems to be, no, it's not your word, it's who you give it to. It's having enough respect for yourself Mm -hmm. and for the people you choose to ally yourself with. Exactly. Even if, as in the case of Straw Dogs, when David stands and refuses to let people into his house. Right. The person he's protecting is not through any fault of his own, because that's the other thing that's kind of hinky, which I think would not stand in modern day, which Mm -hmm. is that 
Peckinpah kind of implies that the David Warner character doesn't even really know what he's doing. Yeah. That these horrible things that he does are not things that are motivated by horrific thoughts in his head. It's just, he doesn't know his own strength, he's not very smart, and he likes pretty things. Right. It comes down to the quote that I sort of borrowed at the top of the show from Ride the High Country. I believe it actually was his first whisper mm-hmm. that he made. And in the movie, for those of you who haven't seen it, it stars the two icons. And I think mm-hmm. it's extremely representative that we have Sam Packenpah, the man who reinvented the Western. Right. He had the two icons mm-hmm. of the pre-Sam Packenpah Western period. Mm-hmm. He had Joel McRae and Randolph Scott. Right. Mm-hmm. You remember that great scene, Blazing Saddles, right. where Black Martin, he's trying to get the town on yeah. his side and do it. And they said, well, screw you, we're leaving town. And he says, you do it for Randolph Scott. Scott. And Ooh, Randolph Scott. And you hear the angels singing, yeah. and everybody takes off their hat. Yes. Randolph Scott. Scott. Well, that's how Randolph Scott mm-hmm. was held in regard. Yeah. And in the movie, they played two cowboys. They were both former lawmen right. who have pretty much outlived their time. And Joel McRae gets a job mm-hmm. to go up to this mining camp and bring the gold back to this bank. He's plainly too old for the job, so right. he goes hunts up his old partner, played by Randolph Scott, who has fallen on hard times, and he's working in a Wild West show right. now with this younger kid who he's good with his guns, but he's cocky and he's everything that they weren't when they were younger. Randolph Scott agrees to go ahead with this because secretly he's planning to steal the gold. Now, the interesting thing about this movie is that you have... Joe McCray, who still adheres to the values that he had to uphold the law, and he gets into this philosophical conflict with his old partner, right. who keeps trying to, well, you know what, we worked all these years, we cleaned up all these towns, we killed off all these bad men, but we never got anything out of it. Here's our chance for mm-hmm. a big payday. And at the end of the movie, of course, the two old friends are reconciled. Right. It's a wonderful movie, and right then in that movie, you get a lot of the values that we're going to see, and a lot of things played out we're going to see in later Peck and Paul movies. The theme of men bonding together, holding their word together. Right. What is right? What is wrong? Should we do this? And if we do this, why are we doing this? Because in all of Peck and Paul's movies, he don't lay it out why people are doing what they're doing. Right. You actually have to work, and you have to see these people, and you say, well, damn. Like, mm-hmm. in Next to the Wild, but it's probably my favorite Peck and Paul movie. It's got one of the greatest titles of all time, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, where we have that terrific Warren Oates performance Mm -hmm. based, I'm told, on Sam Peckinpah himself. And everybody got it but Sam. But Sam Peckinpah. Apparently a lot of people did, because there's a famous sketch done in Saturday Night Live where Jim Belushi plays Sam Peckinpah, directing his first romantic comedy, and ends up (laughs) beating up his leading lady. Uh And supposedly, Belushi, for weeks later, got approached by various people who worked with him and said, mm-hmm. I don't think you realize this, but you did the dead spot perfect Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. Sam Peckinpah, this is the guy, mind you, when he was shown a cut of his Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yeah. A cut he hadn't did because the project was taken from him by the studio and they recut it. He got up on the stage and in front of all the executives, he urinated on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> So this was an independent yeah. thinker. Oh, well, he had a lot of problems with major studios. Yeah, who agreed he was a brilliant director, but he was a pain in the ass to right. work with. And he was one of those guys that was a mean drunk. You know, let's be honest about it. He was a raging drunk. As I was telling you on the phone, that was the last movie he made, yeah. Convoy. 
Next to last, because after Convoy's was Osterman winning. Osterman weekend. His good friend Chris Christopherson yeah. had said that he actually directed a large amount of that mm-hmm. movie as Peckinpah was simply too drunk to do it. He said he would show up some days he was loaded. Well, you look at his history and you'll see that his ass was saved many times mm-hmm. by people who respected and liked him. Well, he had a lot of friends. Going as far you know, back as Major Dundee. Oh, where, yeah. Where Charlton Heston apparently really, really liked Ride the High Country, called him up and said, Sam, this is Charlton Heston. I would like to work with you. Let's come up with a project. But the studios just wouldn't leave their grubby hands off of the project. And Heston had to step up a couple times, even if I remember correctly, taking a pay cut midway through yeah, the film. Heston took a pay cut. He said, take the money you were going to pay me and put it into the budget. And the weirdest thing is, now him and Peckinpah got into an argument. Yeah. And they said Heston didn't get physical with a lot of people. They got into a physical. But here's the thing. Heston still would let them fire yeah. Peckinpah. He said, no. He said, don't fire him. He was a him. person, oddly enough, despite all the problems he had, Professionally, he engendered a lot of loyalty among yeah. certain type of persons. Well, this was the thing: as many enemies he had, he had a whole bunch of friends, too, mm-hmm. influential friends. For you out there, if you've never seen Major Dundee, you owe it to you to see it. Now, Turner Classic Movies, if you have Turner Classic Movies, mm-hmm. they show it with the Sam Peckinpah cut because eventually he did get yeah. a hold of that movie and he recut it to the way he wanted it. It's a strange western. Well, most Peckinpah movies are strange, but this one, yeah, it's one of those things that you have to see and you look at it and you say, wow, how can I say it? It's like an existential western. It's like Moby Dick on land in a lot of ways. With Heston, he puts together this ragtag group of... Because he screwed up. The Charlton Heston character, Major Dundee, has screwed up. And he's sent to a military prison. That's his punishment. There's also this Mexican Indian that's right. crossing the border and he's slaughtering men and women and butchering babies. So Heston figures that he can get back his glory if he goes, finds right. this guy, and if he kills him. Unfortunately, he doesn't have enough men. However, Richard Harris, who plays a southern... Captain, him and his men are prisoners in this prison. And he goes to the, and Heston says, Well, listen, on your word as officer, help me go get this guy right. and I'll do something for you. I'll let you go. So, for his own reasons, the southerners decided. Mm-hmm. There's also these black soldiers led by, I believe it's Brock Peters. And he says, Well, sir, we've never seen any action. We want to see action. Can we go with you? Heston says, Fine. So, this ragtag group goes along to find this Indian and it turns into Moby Dick. Because you never see this guy that they go. You just see what he does. And Heston and everybody progressively gets crazier and crazier right. and crazier as they're looking for this Indian. It's worth seeing. Although there is apparently so many different versions, you're not sure which version you're going to Well, find. like I said, if you watch the Return of Classic Movies, they show Peckinpah's okay. version. The version that Peckinpah yeah. claimed to the end of his days was one of his best movies. Yeah, that's the one you're going to see. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know which one they have on DVD. Mm-hmm. Knowing them, they probably have both versions. They right. probably have the original theatrical version and they have the Peckinpah version. But if you have Turner Classic Movies, you are going to see the one that Peckinpah did. That made his reputation mud, the whole Peckinpah <laughs> thing. This is something we'll see as we go further. But then he goes and he does a favor for somebody and writes and directs this TV movie called Noon Wine. Mm-hmm. And everybody says... Hey, he is a good director. Mm -hmm. And then United Artists gives him money to create what is perhaps his masterpiece, The Jewel in His Crown, Mm -hmm. The Wild Bunch. A film so violent and so morally ambiguous Mm -hmm. and so brutal in its sexual and personal politics that when it was re-released in the 90s... It got MC-17. Yeah. 
which was beyond that. That's how violent it was. I actually saw the Wild Bunch during its original theatrical run. Me and my father, he took me to yeah. see it. My mother and my sisters, they had went to South Carolina to visit right. my grandparents. And for that summer, it was just me and my father, two bachelors mm-hmm. hanging out. And one day he says, we're going to the movies. Right. <laughs> and I said, well, great, Dad, let's go. Little did I know he was taking me to a life-changing experience. Are you kidding? I think I was something like yeah. six or seven years old at the time. But I remember it vividly because of the sex and the violence that was in that yeah. movie. I was like, wow, this is great. Especially that apocalyptic shootout. John Woo says yeah. that every shootout he's done is was based on the final right. ten minutes of the Wild Bunch. When you talk about total apocalyptic destruction, that's it. But also, again, you have the themes of these aging gunfighters mm-hmm. who have outlived their time. They're running out of places to go, and they agree to pull up this one last job. It's these guns that they right. have to rob from a U.S. Army train. And one of their members is a Mexican. And right. he says, well, my people need guns to fight the revolution. So they agree to give them one case of gun and one right. case of ammunition. However, the guy that they're working for, this Mexican general, finds out about it, and he holds on to... This member of the Wild Bunch, Angel. Doesn't Angel kill his ex-wife? He kills his girlfriend, who yeah, taken up with this Mexican yeah. general. And that's, I think, the real reason that the general's like, you know what? No! You're not leaving. No, that's not it. Because he kills the girl before they yeah. even pull off the robbery. The general yeah. don't care. Isn't the general about to kill him, but Warner says, no, I need him. And she relents at the time and says, okay, fine. And then when they come back and deliver You're right. the stuff. That's exactly what happened. He says, well, I need him to pull off the robbery. So he goes and he holds on to Angel and he tortures him unmercifully. Drags him around on that newfangled invention that he got called a car. Which is another interesting thing mm-hmm. about this movie. And it shows how Peckham yeah. is showing how these guys have become such a relic of their time. Because it's a western, but these guys are using... Coke 45, there's automatic weapons in this movie, there's all these newfangled things. Oh, yeah, like when they they uncover it on the army train, Mm -hmm. as they're transporting all their ill-gotten gains, they come across, once again, another newfangled thing called a machine gun. A machine gun, right, which they give to the general as as a present. That wasn't part of the package, but they give it to him. So, William Holden, he watches the torture that's like mm-hmm. going on. So then the members of the Wild Bunch, him, Ernest Borgnine, Warren Oates, mm-hmm. and Ben Johnson. Right. They go have one last night to get drunk. They sleep with the horse. And in the morning, they get up, and you see them. It's like yeah. a mutual decision that they made. They just are loading up. They're putting yeah. their ammunition. And William Holden said, let's go take a walk. And right. they go to get their boy back. And they said, oh, man. And they, they wipe out an army. To me, it is the best shootout ever committed to film. Absolutely, with no doubt. It's these things of loyalty and men bonding together and sticking together no matter what. You have this one group that's loyal to it, and the one person that was a part of the group that wasn't loyal to Warren Oates, who's the one that's leading up the group of idiot bounty hunters. Yeah. He's the only one who lives. Played by Robert Ryan. Yeah. Who actually was a member of the Wild Bunch, and he got caught in a flashback we see how he got caught. And he's turned loose from jail because since he knows Mm -hmm. these men... And, yeah, he's put in charge of these incompetent. Yeah. And at one point he says, I wish to God I was riding with these other guys. But he's yelling at the guy who hired him because he's been press gang into this because they say, look, either you do this for us, you have 30 days, and at the end of 30 days you don't do this for us, 
you're going back to jail. He was in Yuma, which at that time, if you gave a guy a choice between mm -hmm. going to Yuma or going to hell, he said, oh, I'll right. go to hell. It'll be easier doing time in hell. One of the things I like about the movie is that at the end of the movie, you get the impression that because it's Robert Ryan and it's another one, the old man, yeah. he's still left alive. Mm -hmm. And you get the impression that they're going off and forming a new wild, wild bunch. Yeah, yeah, their own wild bunch at the end. It's a movie that I tell people all the time, if you're a movie fan, well, if you're a movie fan, you should see anything that Peck Paul has done. Now, mm -hmm. having said that, for the women listening to this, first of all, you got to be a little bit sensitive. And as I keep telling people all the time, you have to appreciate these movies for what they were in the context and the time in which they were right. made. Let's put it this way. Sam Peckinpah wasn't really too kind to women right. in his movies, to put it mildly. Some women in his movies did have good roles, like Katie Gerardo right. in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which to me is a very underrated Western. I like it a lot. A lot of people don't like it. Right. They say it's boring, it's too slow. I said, well, you must not be watching the same movie that I do. It's right. got Bob Dylan. Right. He did the soundtrack. This is a movie that's probably more famous for the soundtrack right. than the actual movie, since this is where we first hear Knocking on Heaven's Door. Yeah. Which Bob Dylan wrote for this movie. And he plays the guy, Alias. Alias. <laughs> what, what's your name? Alias. <laughs> <laughs> Just to hear Bob Dylan pronounce his name. <laughs> the first in a series of Christopher Wrong 1 oh, movies God. starring Bob Dylan. Oh my God. Alias. <laughs> yeah. Not all of his films were about people killing each other. Because then you've got like The Battle of Cable Hope. Which was comedy. Although a western in its own right and still keeping the whole theme about people having to deal with time passing them by and people being loyal to each other. Then you also have Junior Bonner as another similar film, which is a modern day western. With Steve McQueen. Well, bring me the head about yeah. Fredo Garcia. That's a modern day western. As a matter of fact, the first ten minutes, mm -hmm. you would swear that it's a western until you get outside right. and then you see these guys driving away in cars and yeah. trucks. You would think it's taking place in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. You don't think it's happening in modern day. I've stated in the past, even though it takes place in the modern day in the wilds of the north of England, Draw Dogs is a western. Well, with a little bit of rewriting, yeah, yeah you could easily put it in 19th century Wyoming or Utah. Yeah. In a way, that was Peckinpah's point in making this film. The West is as much a place of mind as it exactly. is. Exactly. There is always going to be bad places no matter where you are in the world. There are always going to be places you are not welcome. Just as the Wild Bunch realized that they're not welcome in this new world of machine guns mm -hmm. yeah, and automobiles. automobiles yeah. David, the mathematician, played by Dustin Hoffman, is not welcome in this world of the English countryside where there's a much different tone than he's used to and where he came from in the counterculture 60s. And you've accurately put your finger on something that I've told people plenty of times. They seem to think that well, that's not a Western. Why is it not yeah. a Western? Well, it doesn't have horses in it. Where are the mm -hmm. Indians? No, 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 no. You have a Western modern day. It's a state of mind right. as well as a place. Well, even the getaway. Oh, yeah, brilliant movie. Is a Western in its right as well. What is it? It's yeah. a husband and wife stick-up crew. Mm-hmm. Running from the law after a, <coughs> a stagecoach heist. Yeah, yeah. They rob a bank or rob a stagecoach, and they're on the run now. They're on the land. Yeah. Just I mean, I will say that I think that the script doesn't take full advantage of the Jim Thompson novel on which it's based. Well, as any movie based... Except for the Grifters. Maybe the Grifters? I don't think the Grifters works because of a certain casting. Okay. The problem with casting Annette Bening is that... Thompson establishes in The Grifters mm -hmm. that the younger woman that is the main character's girlfriend looks remarkably like 
his mother. His and mother, is yeah. Older. And his is, mother. It's also, I think, also a little bit older than him. Annette Bain does not look like Angelica Houston at all. I think that's because they just bypassed that yeah. having the room so they could go right to the heart of the matter. Because mm-hmm. there is a strong incest theme that runs through well, it. There's, because you get the impression yeah. that if Angelica Houston and John Cusack, yeah. if he hadn't slept with his mother, he wants to. Yeah. Well, incest is something that seems to have fascinated Thompson throughout his career. Mm-hmm. There are a number of his novels and short stories, some of which have even been adapted to film, like This World and then The Fireworks, which have some sort of relationship between relatives where there's obviously a sexual tension there. And everybody in the movie, the grifters, everybody else picks up on it, too. It's that obvious. They say, you and your son, what's going on with you and your son there? Yeah, now see, that's a movie that could have been directed by Patrick Paul. exactly. By the way, The Getaway is once again another film that he got to direct because somebody liked him. Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen yeah. enjoyed working with him and said, if you want me to be in this movie, I want this guy to direct it. Who knows what could have happened if he wasn't insistent on destroying himself. They insisted on working with him, and these were guys, they would stay up all night boozing it up and then get up the next day and get up and shoot the movie. Yeah. Remember, we're talking about a director who supposedly famously boasted, I can't direct while I'm sober. Well, we saw what he did when he directed when he was sober, but the awesome we yeah. Oh, that is a sad end. Which the only two things I can recommend about that movie is that mm-hmm. we see Rucker Howard playing a role totally unlike any he had played up until then. Because remember, this is when he first started. So he yeah. was cast as the heavy most yeah. of the time. I think it was like the first movie where he mm-hmm. played the heroic lead, really. And we got yeah. to see him. And because I think cause he did Blade Runner. By that time, of course, he played Roy Batty. And he was also the terrorist in Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams. Yeah. And, of course, Meg Foster, who I love, but but a lot of people, they said they don't care for her. Yeah, but the Osterman week, I've seen that movie maybe like three times. Because I'm that type of person, if I see something that doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. I keep watching it, hoping it'll make sense. That movie still does not make sense to me. The whole subplot with the right. John Hurt character yeah. who's a CIA agent and he set up these people just in order to, I think that's what it is, in order to mm-hmm. get revenge on Burt Lancaster who killed right. his wife. So he sacrificed all these people and make them think that they're spies and, yeah. and somehow he's wired Rucker Howard's whole house without his wife knowing yeah. about it. But Rucker It's a nutty film. You said, what the? And at the end, Meg Foster is running around killing everybody with a bow and arrow yeah. or a crossbow. It's, it's a very nutty film, and it's kind of sad that one of his last things that he has is a canon film. Mm. You know that when your career ends with a canon film, <laughs> you made a couple of wrong turns. <laughs> Although, of course, that wasn't the end of his career. The end of his career was the two music videos he made for, of all people, Julian Lennon, which led to Lennon actually winning an MTV Video Music Award. Wow. People forget about that. They just think Osterman Weekend was the last thing he ever did. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like Peck and Paul was either dragged in by somebody who liked him or was intrigued by working with somebody. Like, we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. The reason he wanted to do that film was because it was a script by Rudolf Wurzeser, who did Tulane Blacktop. Oh, okay. You can see why Sam Peck and Paul liked that movie. Because it's about two guys... Yeah, well, it's an existential yeah. road picture. And it had one of his favorite guys yeah. in it, Warren Oates. Warren Oates. He used in a lot of, yeah. a lot of his movies. It's almost something elegiac about that film. It's slow. I wouldn't call it meandering, more like leisurely. Know what it would make a good double feature with? What? Vanishing Point. Yes, it would. Because they're both existential car mm-hmm. chase. That's what they are. They're existential car chase movies. Mm-hmm. So, if you guys never seen Two Lane Blacktop yes. or Vanishing Point, trust me. 
go see mm-hmm. it, and then we'll come back and talk. Because right. <laughs> I defy anybody to explain to me what Vanishing Point is about. Right. It's a hell of a good movie. Do whatever you do, stay away from the remake with Viggo yeah. Mortensen. Oh my God, yeah, that stink on ice. Mm-hmm. Pat Garrett, Pat Garrett, Gil- yeah. Billy Kidd. And I was saying that the thing that about Pat Garrett is it's it's a different from Money the other Peck and Paul because it takes its own time. You said people say it's boring. It's not boring. It's more relaxed. Well, see, people nowadays, I don't know, suffer from ADD mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't know what it is. I've had people that have watched movies from the 60s or 70s and they yeah. all say, say, why are they so slow? No, it's not that they're slow. It's just that they knew how to take their time yeah. and setting up a movie and they didn't have to cut exactly. every three seconds. They held the scene until the scene played out. Well, people, oh, well, it's too slow. It moves too slow for me. Well, it don't move too slow for me. And, and me, I like a fast-moving yeah. movie as much as anybody else, but not every movie has to be going mm-hmm. at 90 miles an hour from start right. to finish. After Pack Era, we had Alfredo Garcia, mm-hmm. which many people consider to be the last true Peck and Paw film. Yeah. This is a guy, okay, The Wild Bunch, without a doubt, is his masterpiece, but I would say that Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia yeah. is right up there. Next to the mm-hmm. Wild Bunch. Maybe just a hair below it. But d- depending on when I watch it, mm-hmm. either one takes the place right. as my favorite Peck and Paw movie. I love Pat Garrett. And two, that's, a, that's a Western unlike any Western that I can think of mm-hmm. right now off the top of my head. The bad thing is that you recommend that to people. And then they see it and they say, oh man, I couldn't watch that. Because why not? Well, it's too slow. Right. Nothing happens in it. Well, there's a lot that happens in it if you're paying attention. Right. People don't want to do that nowadays, so yeah. what are you going to do? But then after I've heard it, so you get the ass end of his career. Yeah. You get Killer Elite. Ah! Which is good. It is good. For those of you who haven't seen it, James Kahn and Robert Duvall right. play members of an organization. They're independent contractors. Right. What happens is that the CIA has jobs that can't be connected to them, so they go and they hire Independent mm-hmm. contractors. They go and they hire James Conn and Robert Duvall. They do this job, but as it turns out, Robert Duvall is sold out to the other side. He's supposed to kill James Conn, but that's his partner, so he doesn't do it. Instead, he leaves him crippled by shooting him in one knee and in one elbow. We cut to later on. James Conn, through martial arts, now he's become a martial right. arts master, and he's regained the use of his arm and his leg, and he's hired to do this job, which he doesn't want to take until he finds out that Robert Duvall is involved with it. So now he goes and he puts together a team with Burt Young, a San Francisco cab driver. That's his day job, but when he's called to come back and do this, of course he comes and does it. And Bo Hopkins, who's a psychotic marksman, they go on this job to protect a Chinese diplomat or a Japanese diplomat, which means we have ninjas. Right. Any movie is made better with two things, pirates and ninjas. (laughs) Oh, Torture of Miracle Day would be better with ninjas. Anything is better with ninjas. If ninjas busted right now and started chopping the hell, it'd still be better. That's what the Killer Elite is about. This is a movie a lot of people say that they don't care for. I like it myself. Now, supposedly, thanks to James Caan, Sam Peckinpah decided to lay off the booze and start on the cocaine. Oh, cool. After Killer Elite, we get Cross of Iron. White line. Although what I find funny is Rang dang ding a dang a dang Rang dang ding a dang a dang Was the films that apparently Peck and Paw turned down Before he decided to go with Cross of Iron Which is of course his attempt to do Western in the middle of World War II From the point of view of the Germans Now Cross of Iron was a 
of World War II movie. Yes. Who was in there? George Papar? James Coburn. James Coburn, okay. James Coburn plays the head of this German division, and he's really cool. And It's, it's an interesting film because it takes place from the point of view of the Germans. But the thing I wanted to point out is two films that he had been offered. Apparently, Dino De Laurentiis was another one of these people who really, really admired Peckinpah and wanted to work with him. And the two films that he offered him before Peckinpah agreed to do Cross of Iron, King Kong mm. and Superman. Now, see, I would have really liked to see a, a Sam Peckinpah Superman. Does Superman have to smack a bitch? But see, Sam Peckinpah would have never done that because Superman does not exemplify yeah. the values that Peckinpah lived by. Mm-hmm. Peckinpah didn't believe in true right. justice in the American way. He believed in the individual the in, yeah, and the individual making his own destiny mm-hmm. and being an outsider himself. That's what he related right. to. Now, it could be argued that Superman is... An outsider, but not really. Superman is the ultimate immigrant who has assimilated himself into American culture. I suspect that if Peckinpah had taken it, what we would have gotten is something closer to what John Peters had envisioned for Superman Reborn. The abortive Tim Burton project. Peckinpah could have done Batman. Mm-hmm. Now, Sam Peckinpah, Batman, <laughs> that, see, that boggles the mind. Yeah. yeah. Sam Peckinpah could have done X-Men. Hell, I yeah. mean, he Sam Peckinpah was more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy. Mm-hmm. He could have done Spider-Man. He could have done, hell, I could see him do a, a wicked Captain America. Daredevil. Oh, God. yeah. With Warren Oates as the kingpin. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Made it work. Yes, he would have. He made see it work. Cross of Iron, though, was a disastrous production. Apparently, he improvised the whole last act of the film. Well, Major Dundee, yeah. he started filming that. He didn't yeah. have a full script either. He just started filming. He had no idea how the damn thing was going to end. It's a really interesting film because it was very rare at that time to have a film from the point of view of the enemy. That was the major selling point. And I think that's one of the reasons why he didn't do well at the box office, because even though it was critically well-received, a lot of people were like, I don't want to go see a movie about Nazis. Like Night of the Generals? Yeah. You ever seen that? Yeah. Well, that's a murder mystery more Mm -hmm. than a war movie, but it's told from completely from the point of view of the Nazis. Yeah. Although, to be fair, uh, another reason why Cross of Iron did not do well at the box office was because there was another film that came out at roughly the same time called Star Wars. Ah, okay, well. From Cross Iron, we get, of course, Chris Christopherson saying, Sam, why don't you come and do Convoy with me? <laughs> we'll have fun, we'll hang out, you get to drive a lot of... For those but of you... The thing is, okay, I can see, though, why this project attracted him. Because it's a movie about a bunch of outsiders defying the law. The law, right, yeah. Yeah, I honestly see why he did it. For those of you who are too young to remember, back during the 70s... See, there was this thing called the CB craze. Where all of a sudden we were infused with all of these CB talk. Like, people tell me all the time, because usually when I'm talking to somebody and I end the conversation... Yeah. I say 10-4. And people right. say, well, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's what truckers used to say. They used to say 10-4 when they ended the, you know, 10-4, good buddy. And it just stuck with me. But there was a popular song. Yeah. Convoy. Convoy. By we C.W. Got a, McCall. We got a great big, big convoy rocking through the night. Hey, hey, yes, we, we got, got a great big convoy. Ain't she a beautiful sight? Come on, join our convoy. Ain't nothing gonna get no way. We gotta throw this rocking convoy across the USA. Convoy. And you know what happened. We just lost. <laughs> the song was so popular, they decided to make a movie based right. around this song. 
which they played about mm -hmm. 50 times through the whole thing with Chris Christopherson playing a character called the Rubber Duck. And through the movie, they get this huge convoy mm -hmm. of hundreds and hundreds of cars and vehicles and people just join right. him as he's going across America. Christopherson, apparently all the boozing and the cocaine use. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about a guy who had to get a second pacemaker. Because he burned out the first yes! one. <laughs> during the filming of Killer Elite, he burnt out his old, he had to get a second pacemaker. His health was so bad at this point that, yes, Christopherson had to direct a lot of that stuff. They brought in James Colburn. Yeah, yeah. To do second unit. Primarily, the main reason to have Colburn there was to keep an eye on him. Yeah. The production was 12 days over budget, and it looked like that was it for him. Now, there's an old joke that Richard Pryor used yeah. to tell, and it applies to Sam Peckinpah, too. His cocaine use got so bad that dealers wouldn't sell to him yeah. no more. Now, when you got a drug dealer, period, right. that's telling you to stop, I'm not selling you to no more, that yeah. should be a wake-up call. Because by this time, both James Coburn and Chris Christopherson yeah. had given up the drinking and the cocaine. Yeah. And everything. They had given that up, and they said, listen... Yeah, oh man, we can't keep up with you with yeah. that no more. We got to leave this shit alone. <laughs> the thing that impresses me, wandering through his life right now, mm -hmm. is the loyalty he yeah. engendered among people. Heck, after the convoy, he was non compass mentis, and yet Don Siegel reaches out to him three years later and offers him probably a job that you, you would think that most directors today, if they were in the same straits, would think is an insult. A second unit director on Jinx. Yeah. And Peckinpah took it, and he apparently behaved himself, and that's what inspired Dino De Laurentiis to say, would you like to do the Osterman Week? Would you like to do this? Now, you want to know my theory for why yeah. I think that Sam Peckinpah engendered all this love and loyalty from his friends? What? Because from my understanding of the man's life and his dealings yeah. and what I read about him, yeah, as bad as he was, he still never screwed over anybody. Yeah. Or at least not intentionally he mm -hmm. screwed over anybody. And in Hollywood... That's a very right. rare commodity. And I think a lot of these people that stood by him, they knew that about him and they appreciated that about him. Hell, Christopher Thompson always said that Sam Peckinpah, it wasn't for him, he would have never gotten in the movie. Right. Because nobody thought he could act. Because he was a songwriter at this right. point. Songwriter yeah. singer. Nobody didn't think he could I act. I mean, going back to Carlton Hesterford, this is a man who does not suffer fools gladly. There you go. Yeah, and even though they got on each other's nerves on the set... Mm -hmm. I don't think Heston has ever, in all of his life, ever said a bad word. Never heard anything Charlton Heston said about it. I was reading about this movie, Major Dundee, and yeah, they got into a physical confrontation because of the way that Pekka Paul was treating some of the crew members. Right. They got into it, and the studio hated him. They wanted to fire him, and Heston said no. They said, if you're not firing him. I said I want him to direct this movie. And I want him to direct, and this, I want movie. direct yeah. this movie. And that's it. And they said, yeah, but you can't stand the man. Well, that's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. He's still the best man to direct this project. And he's one of these people that his influence is so far and wide at this point. We talked about John Woo. Let's talk about Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Paul Schrader. Schrader, yeah. You can definitely see the fingerprints of Peck and Paul and Schrader's mm -hmm. over here. Even one of my favorite, a woman who, probably the first woman we're going to do a Great Great Men episode on. <laughs> Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow, oh my God, yeah, yeah. Cat, once again, look at her first film, The Loveless. The Loveless, okay. Which is, it's weird, if instead of directing westerns, Peck and Paul decided to direct a biker movie. That's what The Loveless is. Oh my God! The vampire movie. Yeah, that she near, did. Don't, near dark is totally near dark. a peck and Paul. That's Western. a peck and Paul vampire movie. Totally. Yeah. If Peck was going to do a vampire movie, yeah. that's the one he would have did. So many people have Michael Mann, John Milius. Michael Mann, yeah, yeah. For goodness sakes, John Milius should be signed over all his checks to Peck and Paul. I think. Matter of fact, didn't he co-write Peck, Aaron, and Billy the Kid? 
the only name I have as a direct is the one that we've already. Oh, okay. Mentioned. Okay, I seem to recall him co-writing one of the Pekka Paws movies. Yeah. I don't know. I could be wrong. I'll look it up later on. If it is, I'll throw it up on the okay. Better in the Dark Facebook page. It's all of these people that you're saying his influence mm-hmm. over. Like I said, he completely reinvented because. Once the Wild Bunch came out, everybody said, okay, I want to do right. a Western like that with blood flying around. Because people, you have to remember, in Westerns prior to Peckinpah, people got shot. You didn't see any blood. It was Maybe you see my a little patch yeah. on them, but not to the degree where you saw in the Wild Bunch where people got shot. And then they just didn't get up. These people had big painful holes yeah. in their body. And you saw blood and pieces of meat flying. The Wild Bunch was one of the first times you saw that level of violence in a major oh. You saw it a lot in B-movies and exploitation, but this yeah. was the first time we saw it in a film from a major production house that was released countrywide. Yeah, that movie, that packed them in. People went to see Every time it's reissued, it still packs them in. I heard that they're going to bring mm-hmm. it back to the theater yeah. again. Can you imagine seeing that in IMAX? You and I are going, oh, hey IMAX? They, in IMAX, you and I are going. Should make the sex a lot more interesting. We too. should make. We should actually. We should maybe make it a, a, a BITD get together. We should. We if should. They, but I mean, I don't know if they're actually going to do it. But that's what I heard. I, heard I want to end, end this by doing a little bit of fantasy booking. Ooh. Use a phrase from wrestling. Okay. Let us say that instead of being born in 1925, Peck and Paul was born in 1945 or 1955. So that. He starts coming into his own as a director at the height of the independent studio. Mm, interesting. I think one of the things that we've talked about when we were discussing his career is that many times when he's done a film for a major studio, the studio has fucked him over. Mm-hmm. Do you think this story would have a happier ending if his career started at the dawn of the independence? Oh, absolutely, because Sam Peckinpah was an independent director, even though he was working in the studio system. Well, he had to because at yeah. the time, uh, as you point out, there was no independent movie system. You had to work for the studio or you didn't work right. unless you decided to go overseas and do Italian movies, which is what some people did do. But yeah, in his attitude toward his material and what he wanted to do, Sam Peckinpah very much was an independent film producer, yeah. and if he had come around at that heyday, yeah, we probably still have movies coming oh, out. Yeah. And I believe that the man's addiction problem, a lot of them, of course, he could have been genetically predisposed yeah. towards it, but I do believe a lot of it came out of the frustrations and the roadblocks that he yeah. had. Because from what I understand, no matter what he tried to do, there was always a studio in the way saying, right. well, you can't do this, or we want this. And imagine what that. would have happened if, let's say, instead of the first person he worked with was Warner Brothers, it was Miramax. Oh, yeah, well, the Weinsteins, yeah. they did the same thing they did with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Well, go do what you want to do. Okay, Quentin, just bring it back here when you're done. Yeah, exactly. Here's $20 million. Go make a movie. Or Zeotrope, or one of the other... And they gave him, what, $20 million, and yeah. he came back with, what, Reservoir Dogs? Yes. <laughs> That's another oh, movie that Peck and Paul could have yeah. did. Reservoir and, and you Dogs. you could, like, imagine the work he could have done with such screenwriters like Robert Avery. Oh, yeah. Right, now, now we're bad-mouthing any of the screenwriters that he used. No, no, no. But you could just imagine the amazing film. And you're right, given his druthers, you probably would have done probably the most accurate Jim Thompson novel adaptation of all time. Whether it would have been The Killer Inside Me or... Oh, wow. I just saw that, but have you ever seen that movie? I haven't seen the most recent one. I saw the one with Daisy Keach. Okay. The thing that's fascinating about that novel is that there's a second novel, and I'm trying to remember the name of it off the top of my head, that Thompson wrote, which features that character as the detective. Mm Mm-hmm. And reading the two of them side by side is fascinating because in the second novel you get the sense that the reason he got away with it as long as he did was because he's a damn good 
psychotic. Who just happened to be psychotic. Who just happened to be psychotic man, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've seen the recent one, the one with Casey Affleck. Yeah. And he's never really impressed me much as mm-hmm. an actor. But you watch this version, you say, oh my God. You can see why he gets away with it for so long. Because this is the last guy you would look at and suspect of being a psychotic killer. Yeah. He's a lawman, so he knows how to cover his trail. He gets away with what he does for a long mm-hmm. time. It's a very disturbing movie. It is. The funny thing is that Thompson is one of these writers who the best adaptations of it, it's kind of like with Ed McBain. You Mm. and I have talked about this, that in my mind, the best adaptation of an 87 Precinct novel Mm -hmm. was Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Although I will say that some of the adaptations done for NBC in the early 90s Mm -hmm. were also pretty up there. In my mind, the best adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel was Population 451, which is a French movie. I find it interesting that there seems to be these writers whose work only gets done well by people from outside of the culture they're writing about. Funny you should mention that. The other day mm-hmm. on Better in the Dark Facebook page, there was a movie was recommended by mm-hmm. Percival Constantine. Yeah. Hi, Dino. Tales from the Script, which is a movie about screenwriters. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, when you go home, go home mm-hmm. and watch it. It's available on Netflix right now. And for those of you that are listening to this, right. I recommend everybody... Watch this movie. And it's about screenwriters. Mm-hmm. There's John Carpenter. There's Shane Black. There's the woman who wrote mm-hmm. Blood Rain. She tells a right. great story about Uwe Boll and the writing of that movie. And they talk about screenwriting. you got the screenplay. They said if 20% of what you wrote gets up on the screen, you're lucky. Yeah. Very, very rarely does what, which goes back to when we said, because in the episode before this one, folks, right. that we recorded today, we were talking about Russell T. Davies. Mm-hmm. And remember when I told you that, well, maybe what you saw on the screen wasn't what was originally written? And see, I was thinking about this when I said this, because a lot of times, especially here, they don't respect what the writer writes. Yeah. Everybody thinks, well, we can make this better, or we can tweak this. And... They say that the downfall of the American cinema is when they start doing these focus groups. Yeah. And they had the focus groups, and then they would take these suggestions. Well, if the hero had a dog, Mm -hmm. it would be better. Okay, fine. Well, we got to put a dog in here now. They said, well, there's no love story. Where's the love? Okay, we got to put a love story in there now. But I think in cinema overseas, they don't do that. They don't have the tendency to say, okay, well, we can fix this. We can tweak this. I got to tell this. The girl that wrote the screenplay for Blood Rain. Right. She says that, okay, she wrote the first draft. She had a meeting with UA Bowl, and she figured that they would go in right. and they would talk about the screenplay and they would make corrections and they would make changes and they would give it back to her and she rewrite right. it. So she gave it to him. She said, the mm-hmm. next thing she knows, she hear that he's filming the movie. She said, yeah. wait, that was just the first draft. They said, they yes. yeah, UA filming it. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, now I understand why his movies turn out the way they do. <laughs> Oh, my God. I cracked up when I heard that. She said, no. She said, I couldn't believe it. She said, yeah. She said, but that's the first draft. It's terrible. They said, hey, okay, UH filming it. Yeah. Yui Ball. Yui. And you know what the funny thing is? As terrible as I find his films, one of the most interesting extras I ever watched was on the Blood Rain DVD. It's an interviewer and Yui Ball sitting down at a restaurant in Germany And just having a conversation. And he ends up talking a lot about the state of the German film industry and how you go about financing. It's really very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you get the impression that he's actually, on some level, a very charismatic guy. And that the reason he gets these movies off the ground is I think that he comes in and he charms people. 
Yeah. In watching this documentary, mm -hmm. and again, Tales from the Script, yeah. that's the name, folks. All of these screenwriters, and there's about 30 screenwriters. Yeah. William Goldman, they talked to him. A lot of it has absolutely nothing to do with talent. Yeah. These were just people that were in the right place at the right time. The guy that wrote the screenplay for the X-Men, for yeah. God's sake. You know how he got the job? Huh. Got the job because he was a friend of Brian Singer and he needed a job. He wasn't even a screenwriter. Yeah. He tells Brian Singer that he needs a job. Brian mm -hmm. Singer says, okay, well, come to the set. I'll find something for you to do. So he says that one day he's talking to Brian Singer because they're friends and mm -hmm. he's bitching about how the script isn't working and he doesn't know how to do yeah. this, do that. The guy starts giving him suggestions. He says, believe it or not, Brian Singer starts using my suggestions. Next thing you know, Brian Singer's telling him, well, listen, you come to the story ideas. I mean, just sit there. Don't say anything. Here's a pad. Just take notes. Yeah. And after the story, I mean, with the real writers, yeah. he turns to his friend. He said, okay, well, what you got? Well, how do you think we should do yeah. this? And that's how he got to be a screenwriter. Sometimes it's just luck. Well, me personally, I believe that luck is opportunity combined with being prepared. Yeah. One thing that I got from these things is that a lot of them, except that people like William Goldman, so who yeah. are old school guys who actually wanted to be screenwriters. A lot of these guys that are coming up today, they have no intention of being screenwriters. They just happen to be there. And they have some idea, which to me is kind of frightening. But then I've always said that considering, given the participatory nature of a movie, and it's a collaborative right. thing, it really surprises me a lot of times how many good movies actually do get made, yeah. considering how many people put their hands in a movie. But yeah, getting back to what we started. What we're talking about, which is that what would Peck happen if Peckinpah Peck had Paul, been yes. in the independent. I do believe that Peckinpah would still be alive today. Yeah. I believe that he was a guy that cared a lot about his and work. And more importantly, I think in the more modern day and age where they would have clauses yeah. saying, we don't catch you doing this. If we catch you doing this, you're bounced. Yeah, you're bounced, right. Back then, that kind of image, the hard drinking, partying all night, they actually cultivated that type of image, right. and that's the image that they wanted back then. I'm sure today that if he was working today on a movie, they would probably have, okay, well, we're going to drug test you. Mm -hmm. Every day while you're working, if we find anything in your system, you're off the movie. Do what you want to do after you finish. But, yeah, I do believe that we would still have him around today. And he yeah. would be. Because it's ironic. As bad as we talk about it now, how bad movies are, still, there's a climate there. It's more of a climate for guys like Peckinpah, who can right. make the movies that they want. Hell, Peckinpah could have went into a Best Buy and bought the video cameras and laptop yeah. and went out and shot his own damn movie and put it up on could YouTube, you which is what people are doing. Could you imagine the Sam Peckinpah found footage movie? Shoot. I'm just trying to picture this in my mind. Because I can see him being attracted to that idea. Oh, sure. Shit, I'm attracted to that idea. Once I get up off my lazy ass, and I'm going to buy myself a good digital camera. I'm going to write myself a little script, nothing mess up, and I'm going to shoot my own movie and put it up on YouTube just to see if I can do it. I talk a lot about movies, and I am attracted to that. I thought that you could just go out and get yourself a good digital camera, spend a couple hundred right. bucks, get one, bring it back home, plug it into your computer, mm -hmm. edit it, get yourself some software, professional right. software. Edit it on there and put it up someplace. That's a very fascinating idea to me. And mm -hmm. I think Peck and Paul would have been fascinated by that. Yeah. And he would have been great by the fact that there would have been no studio interference. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You can cut the movie any damn way you want mm -hmm. to, and nobody can tell you how to cut it. Which is the only reason to do that. If you want to work in the studio system, you go in there knowing that you got to make concessions. Right. That, yeah, that your picture may be taken away from you. And if you don't mind that, fine. For people like Peckinpah, if they just let him go off and just make movies, he would have been fine. Yeah. But Sam Peckinpah made the mistake that I think a lot of brilliant people do, like Orson Welles and a lot yeah. of people. At some point, you got to learn how to let it go. And they cared too much about their projects, and they took everything too personally. Which, yes, I know, folks, 
it's hard to do when you put your heart and soul into something like that. But given the soul-destroying nature of the right. business he was in, he should have learned how to let it go and just say, I can't win this battle, but let me win this one. And that's another large thing about when you get into a business like that. You have to learn how to pick your battles. Another bit of fantasy booking I'm going to throw out here. Okay. Do you think that Peck and Paul... Because remember, Peck and Paul started out in television. In television westerns, Yeah. Do you think if he was, once again, born several years earlier so that he was coming into his own around the 90s when the rise of the writer-producer in television, The Sopranos and Alias and The X-Files, where it was possible for somebody to have more freedom actually on television than in the movies, do you think he would have left television? Do you think that today a Sam Peckinpah show would gain the same buzz and excitement that, let's say, a J.J. Mabram show would have now. Well, see, Sam Peckham probably wouldn't work for ABC. Oh, no, he would be on HBO. Showtime, HBO. HBO, Showtime, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and if AMC pulled something like that, he'd say, go fuck yourself. What they did to Whatchamacallit. Yeah, with with Frank Darabont. Oh, man. What kind of bullshit is that? I would have loved to have been, though, in the boardroom. Yeah, we were talking about that. I would have loved to see that. Just to see, like, Frank (laughs) Darabont. Okay, let me get this straight. You're happy with my show about zombies. You want me to continue doing it without the zombies. Well, let me get this straight. You want me to do a zombie show. That's right, that's right. But you don't want me to show any zombies. Yeah, you got it, you got it. Can you do that? I don't know. Why don't we try doing a TV show with no actors? <laughs> How about I do a season without producers over my shoulder? Can oh, we do that? Oh, my God. That is a- now, see, okay, perfect. This is the mentality that Peck and Paul was up against. Yeah. If you deal with that type of mentality, is it any wonder that you start drinking? It's yeah. either that or you go crazy. One or the other. You want me to do a, a zombie show, but you don't want me to show oh, zombies. zombies. What if you heard them from outside? You want me to do a western, but you don't want me to use horses. You don't want me to do it. Well, no, we want you to do it in the Amazon jungle. What? This is the mentality. Okay, okay, to be fair, this that, that is the last min- thing you just said, I could see him used to seeing that as a challenge. Okay. And go like, hmm, actually, let me get back to you on that. But this is the mentality that you're dealing with. Yeah. Here. Is it anyone that... You have to have a thick skin. You have to have a, a high, like a rhinoceros, yeah. to work right. in Hollywood. Especially if you're going to be a writer, director. Ultimately, what happens is that when a movie succeeds... Okay, if a movie succeeds... They give the credit to the actor. And the movie or the director. Fa- if the movie fails, the director always yeah. gets the blame for it. The actor never gets the... It's always the director. Well, he failed that. And it's insane. It's no wonder the man ended up the way he did. If he had to deal with that type of mentality every day. Yeah. So to sum up. Yes. If we want to recommend people to watch some Peck and Paw, what should we do? I would say you go for the trifecta. Which right. I'm calling the trifecta, which you absolutely have to see mm-hmm. first. You watch The Wild Bunch. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. And finish with Straw Dogs. Don't watch it first. Yeah. <laughs> watch that last. That's, that's rough viewing. Yeah, watch that last. Because you got to get eased into Peckin' Paul's world. Right. Then the ultra-violent ending set to bagpipe music is going to make perfect sense. Yeah, you have to do that. I recommend The Wild Bunch first because, of course, that's when everybody right. knows. Even if you've never seen it, you've heard of The Wild right. Bunch. So start with that one and then 
go with bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia because yeah, it gets to be a kind of a little rough going toward the ending too because it's got yeah. kind of a rough ending too. And then finish up with Straw Dogs. I guarantee by then you want to leave Peck Paul. Well, yeah, I mean, for a while. there's a, there's a long stretch of Alfredo Garcia which is kind of hard to watch when yeah. he's getting more and more nutsy cuckoo. Yeah, it's really. You watch it and you're wondering how much of it is acting and how much of it is Warren Oates really being. Yeah. I tell you, the first time I saw it, I said, that guy's got to be drinking real tequila out that bottle. Yeah. To do this. Because there's a point where it doesn't seem mm. like acting. Yeah. And then after that, by all means. Then- At that point, after those three films, you say, I like this guy. I want to see more. <laughs> then you're ready for Pat Garrett. Yeah, Pat Garrett. You're ready for Pat Garrett. I think that Cross of Iron mm-hmm. is really, really fun. Cable Hoge. Yeah, Cable Hoge. Which is one that apparently was Peckinpah's favorite and it frustrated him to no end. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. That nobody right. liked That it. nobody liked it. I, th- I think that he said that that's his favorite movie yeah. out of all the ones he's done. Also, if you have Netflix and if you are a Western fan, Sam Peckinpah wrote and directed a bunch of episodes in Westerns such as Have Gun Will Travel. Right. He produced one series called The Westerner. The Westerner with Brian Key. Yeah. He directed and wrote a handful of Gunsmoke. A bunch of Westerns in the 50s and 60s because that's where he cut his teeth on as far as the Westerns went. During that yeah. big Western boom of the 50s and 60s. He wrote and directed a bunch of them. So if you're interested in that, you can go on Wikipedia and you can look up the filmography and get a list of the actual episodes he did and check those out if you like. Yes. So, where does that leave us, Tom? That leaves us to the administrator. Okay. And whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you say that you think that a Sam Peck and Paul Superman would have been the swellest thing on the face of the planet, there's a number of ways you could reach us. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com, where not only is there conversations occasionally coming up about the episodes, you get such wonderful things as Eddie Love's Weekend Matinee Mm. review of obscure movies from the 70s. That cat writes excellent reviews, and if you haven't been reading them yet, well then I don't know what to tell you. You can also join our Facebook group, which is very lively. Just go to Facebook, look up Better in the Dark, and join us. Both Derek and I have Facebook presences, so you can follow our non-Better in the Dark careers. And you can be our friends. Our friends. We like to have friends. Well, you do. You should go to pulpworkspress.com, where you can still order copies of How the West Was Weird, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. And apparently, is it official yet? It is what official? Volume 3. I can't say yet. Okay, we're not right. Let me put it this way. I think that if we popped up tomorrow, and if we said to Russ, okay, well, let's do a third one, yep. he would say, yeah, do it. But the final say is Russ's, because he's the guy to kind of put this together, and he's been the force to... Although, I have heard that both volumes have been very well received, and yep. very well reviewed. And also, of course, as of this listening, for Bullets for Dylan. Which hopefully will be out this month. Matter of fact, I got an email from Joe Jenkins today. The editing yeah. has been done. Everything has been done in it. Mm-hmm. The actual date of when it's going to be on sale. It'll probably be sometime next week. It'll okay. probably be on sale sometime next week. Matter of fact, by the time you listen to this, then when are they going to be listening to this? Probably out sometime in October. I'm not sure October. the exact the exact date. But yeah. Okay, well, definitely by the time you're listening to this, you will hopefully have read the damn book by now. Yeah. But now let me put you on the spot for a second. With the status of... I have fears that it's going to become the, the final dangerous <laughs> <laughs> but it will get done. That's all I will say. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, go Google Harlan Ellison, The Last Dangerous Visions, and you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want it to be that. What's it been, 30 years? 
Yeah. This book is so out of date at this point that there is supposedly an introduction by Harlan where he talks about this exciting new writer he's about to present to you named Stephen King. Stephen King. (laughs) That is hilarious. Oh, my God. So I guess that's it. Oh, wait, we forgot to mention AlteredVisions.org. Oh, absolutely. Where if you go there, both Tom and I are active in the fan fiction community. And Tom is doing West Coast Avengers. And I am doing Avengers. And we're just putting the finishing touches on the first issue. It's all going to be now, it turns out, in West Coast Avengers. But it's the first major crossover between the two teams, Infected. Ta-da! Featuring a special guest star, which a lot of you... A bunch of special guest stars, actually. Yeah, but there's one that really is outstanding and by the time this comes out you'll have read it and you'll know who it is and you'll be like whoa whoa what that's it we once again want to genuflect we miss you sam we wish you were still making movies and not making dirt yeah but it's given to very few people to live behind the body of work that he did and it's a body of work he can be i think proud of yeah we can safely say that he did enter his house finally at the end of the day justified. Absolutely. And I can think of no better way to end this than with that. So, this has been Derek Ferguson. And this has been Thomas DJ. And until next time, go see that movie. Don't worry if he's alive, I'll find him. Alive isn't our problem. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Mike and Paul of Chin Stroker vs. Punter, Mike and Brian of Dysfunctional Workshop, Metal Mikey of Action Attraction, Eric Froman, of course, all the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark has tried to burn out its pacemaker so it can get another one, but it has to get its first pacemaker first. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-dot.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E. J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that if your director thinks peeing on your screen is an acceptable way to show his disapproval, you might not want to really upset him. I saw one just like it in Waco. Hey, right, you know what I hear? I hear the... Take over those things up north that can fly! Ah, that was a balloon, you damned old fool. No, the old man's right. They got motors, wings, go 60 miles in less than an hour.